This is the story of a real person. This is the story of a person with big dreams. These dreams led them to take risks. But you should know up front, this is not a success story. All right, we're here today on The Food of Despair. Did I make a huge mistake quitting my day job to do this, you know? That means my journey, I can take risks and chase things down. I think my biggest fear in all this is that all the effort to overcome the challenges of this past season would go by and ultimately be meaningless. We're here today on the inaugural episode of The Pit of Despair with Riley Kiltz, co-founder and CEO of Craftwork. Today on our podcast, we are going to be talking about the highs and lows of entrepreneurship and zoning in specifically on what we call the pit of despair. The pit of despair is essentially a moment or season of life when often unknown to the people around you, you are struggling. The one thing that you put all your efforts into is not working and at risk of failure. Failure is a taboo subject in our society and we believe we are worse off as a result of it. We believe that failure is part of the process of solving big issues. However, that doesn't make it any less painful. Our ultimate goal at this time is that any innovators out there who feel like a failure would learn to separate their identity from the innovation and that they would know that they are not alone in their own pit of despair. Before we dive in, Riley, give us the high level. Like, what are we talking about today? So today, Catherine, we're going to get to talk about Kraftwerk and how over the last five years, we went from a small local coffee and co-working player to a company with big aspirations to scale across Texas and how those efforts to scale failed miserably and how we're in the process of essentially recovering from that in the pit of despair and pivoting to something different. Uh, but I think at the core of this time is we're really zoning into the challenge of, of failure. And when you realize that something that you put a ton of effort into is not working. Um, but what's exciting, I guess, about this time and our hope for this time is that people would see that they're not the only ones who are struggling with failure, but they would uh, they would know that other people are in those pits with them and that it's worth fighting for those things that they saw originally and start climbing out of their own pit of despair. Tell us a little bit about yourself growing up. Uh, so I grew up outside of Houston. I had two uh, very wonderful and very entrepreneurial parents. Um, They're fairly intense. They loved me a lot. They loved me intensely, but they also pursued their own ventures very intensely. Um, I think that the way that they interacted with the world around them made me believe that the world was malleable and was able to be shifted uh, with the application of my own gifts. Um, I think that that kind of initial experience of just seeing them with their own ventures, my mom in a kind of a serial nonprofit entrepreneur, if that's a thing. And then my dad in the venture capitalist world um, and eventually starting his own venture um, really shaped a lot of the way that I think I see work and see it as something that you can participate in, not just getting a job, but you can go create your own reality. So we're going to talk about your failures here in a little bit, but were there any significant events that shaped you in your early life? I think that probably one of the most kind of constant stories that was told to me as a kid um, was related to my sister, Gracie. She was uh, special needs, was in a wheelchair, couldn't talk, um, but she could make noise, but she couldn't make uh, words uh, that anyone understood. And uh, I think that 
she kept overcoming a lot of different odds. And so I think that my parents were uh, continually emphasizing an underdog story with Gracie of, oh, she'll just be a vegetable her life. And then she starts smiling. Oh, she like they never let Gracie be held back by her disabilities. And so I think that a lot of the way I viewed myself and viewed the world was one of kind of overcoming obstacles, overcoming odds. And so I think watching how much my sister overcome her her own odds and had a huge impact on the people around her. I mean, I, um, I've told you this before, but she won Homecoming Queen. She was um, a, a huge kind of personality in spite of all of these disabilities that was holding her back. Um, and so I think that that really shaped me in the way that I um, viewed myself whenever I faced odds. Mm. And Grace has a street named after her. She does have a street name. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Right, right around the corner from our Austin location. Yeah. So someday maybe you'll have a street named after you. <laughs> <laughs> I, have, I have a lot bigger impact to make before I can get that. Right. So 20-year-old Riley, what were you focused on? What were some of your driving motivations, underlying beliefs at 20 years old? Um, so at 20 years old, I was uh, pretty intense in my education. So I was in college at that time. Um, I was also intensely in love with someone who mm -hmm. is now my wife. Um, and I think that as a 20-year-old, there's this combination of achievement paired with uh the woman who i love and i'm married to now uh is not in the business world and i think we were we were wrestling with a lot of kind of bigger questions about life um and so i think what became clear to me as 20 at, when i was 20 was i really wanted to have an impact on, through my work um i became increasingly uh aware of maybe the challenges and the gaps in our society that I felt weren't being filled through the nonprofit sector. And I thought there was an opportunity to fulfill it through ventures. Uh, Tom Shoes was emerging at that time. Uh, I remember like freshman year painting my Tom Shoes out in the campus commons. Um, <laughs> and I also really wanted to be, uh, I had this drive to be the best, but like on my own terms, I didn't want, I kept a really small circle. I didn't want to be in the front. I really wanted to do kind of quiet, work and then through the results of my work, uh, whether educationally or through um, like a nonprofit that I started on campus, I wanted people to be kind of uh, appreciate me through the work that I did rather than kind of being the cheerleader out in the front of whatever I was working on or be the guy at the front of the class um, kind of praising his name. So I don't know. It was it was a, an interesting, I was doing some reflection work and I, I, college was just like kind of funny in that in that sense of I, I didn't want to be the at the front, but I still wanted that like affirmation of praise from other people. So was coffee or co-working always a part of your story? Like what what drew you into this industry of what craft work was, what craft work is moving into? Um, what drew you into this industry and when did that accelerate? Yeah. So right after school, I went into private equity. I was traveling all over the world, uh, investing in real estate assets and I found myself um, from that travel, um, really looking for spaces that brought life to me. Um, one of those was some cafes in New York City. And then I had that juxtaposed with my office space, which was uh, the early version of co-working, which was Regis Office. And I worked alone frequently. And I think there is a combination of seeing a space that brought life um, and then really longing for uh, a loneliness to be solved. Um, I wasn't, as I said, the social creature. I like 
the solo work. And so it was really strange to feel that isolated. Um, but it really, I think, highlighted how this is a really broad need, not just for those social creatures who want to be out and about, but a really cool core human need um, that our whole society is facing now. There wasn't a lot of data on it then. Um, but as you and I know, Signal puts out a lot of studies on this and it's um, it continues to go up each year with over 60% of people feeling lonely or isolated. So I think I was seeing little tastes of that early on. And uh, it was a time when I was sick of reporting to uh, an office in New York and wanted to be more local, wanted to be more plugged into our city. And when uh, we were pregnant with our second kid, it seemed like a good time to do it and left the comfort of working for Blackstone and launched Craftwork uh, in January of 2016. And so what were your hopes early on with this first concept of Craftwork Cafe co-working community? Be local, be plugged into the lives of the people in our city. Um, I really loved um, design and I love that I got to work on some of the designs of the spaces. Uh, even in those early days, I had a hope that uh, my family would be involved in operations, which is so like funny to think about now because Emily, like your siblings or your, uh, sorry, like Emily, oh, like your wife. my wife oh. would be like involved and like the kids would be involved. Like it would basically be this hyper local yeah. shop. Um, and that's not like, not what manifested at all. Um, which, uh, yeah, it, it was, it was a, a very, we're very, we're in a very different place than I think what the hopes were early on. I think that when you, when I had been traveling so much, but I come back to Fort Worth and I see this amazing city, you're like, oh, how do I get plugged in here? And you're seeing different people start to move and shape in the city. It's like something really special is taking form and I wanted to be a part of that. And so how do you feel like that aligned with your skill sets or your passions? Okay, so this is like one of the funniest things because <laughs> I was <laughs> reflecting on this. Um, so I think that uh, thinking of a new venture, a strategy, doing the analysis to like understand can this model work very much in line with my skill sets. However, I think that um, one of the reasons why the reality that I wanted to happen did not manifest is because I think I quickly found out that I was getting taken out of my skill set, my mm. basically my special skills, my strengths. Um, we talk a lot about craft work about coming to bat with your strengths and making sure that you're applying those. Um, and I think that uh, the design I got to apply, which was good, um, going out and pitching to investors, all of that was like very much in line with like my comfort zone and my strengths. Um, what I realized as a local business owner is uh, it's really like uh, the bread and butter of uh, being a local business owner is uh, being extremely relational and having a pretty broad reach of relationships. And I'm, I really keep a small circle. And I think that like kind of watching how like a business owner needs to be like somewhat of a local politician in a sense, there, mm -hmm. there's so many different relationships you have to manage, you're forming different opinions. And that is, uh, <laughs> you work alongside me. It's, it, <laughs> it's, it's overwhelming to me to, yeah. to think through how to, to manage through those. And uh, my co-founder, Colin, I think he thrived in, in that environment. I think he did that, that really well. Uh, but for me, I think that those relationships were a little bit like overwhelming. Um, and I think on top of that, I had never been an operator before. Mm -hmm. And I think shifting from the strategist investor seat to one of operations, I realized how 
uh, the granularity of operations was exhausting to me and I felt like I wasn't able to apply my strengths. And so in one sense, I was getting to unlock this creative uh, element in me that I wasn't getting to apply with mm -hmm. in the private equity field. But then I also had another side where uh, I felt like I was getting really taken outside of my, my, not just comfort zone, but out of my strengths. Yeah. So I feel like we've set this up to be like a success story, but just to remind everybody, like, this is not a success story. <laughs> so we're going to get to that. <laughs> uh, okay. So let's pause here. You're, you're this hard driving young real estate professional. You leave the venture capital world. You leave the industry to start craft work. As you mentioned, your wife is about to have your second child, mm -hmm. um, and things things are going fairly well. You design this beautiful space, and each each of the locations is really well designed, and like that's where your creativity has really come out. Thanks. But then there's one euphoric moment during your rise to success when you felt like you made it. Uh, after we opened Magnolia, we identify a need in apartment communities of dead amenity space um, that needs to be has an opportunity to be, to be converted into a craft work location. And I uh, pair up with uh, my business partner now, Trevor Hightower. We go raise $3 million of capital together. Uh, we're about to open a third location at the Foundry. And developers keep saying yes to us. Like, we, we can't have a meeting where someone doesn't say, yes, let's put a location in here. And I think that I feel, that was the summer of 20, uh, 2018. And I felt pretty much invincible at that point. Um, I, I think we just got accepted into an accelerator. We just made a key hire that I felt like could really increase our um, operational, um, just improve our operations. And uh, I feel like that summer was like on, on top of the world. Let's go, let's go craft work all across Texas. Um, so. So what were your fears at that point? <laughs> <laughs> you got a lot going for you. Yeah, but there's, I mean, fears accompany that. What, what were they? Uh, I think that a baseline fear with just how intensely I work is um, losing the relation, even though I do keep a close circle, the relationships that are close to me, mm. specifically my, my family. I think that I'm my own worst enemy in that sense of uh, just wanting to like going back to school. And when I was really intense through private equity, it's like, my version of a good day is when my body can't function anymore. And like that applied when you're in a scaling company, it means that like you, you have the ability to never turn it off um, if you want to. So I think I was a little bit concerned about that. And then I think that at that time I could start to see some of our unit economics eroding um, and I couldn't really tell where it was coming from. Uh, but I knew we were also getting a key hire in, and so I thought it was going to be solved through that. Um, and then the last thing is there was like craft work early on uh, and still does, but I think early on we had a very specific type of, or specific application of our mission. And I think I was very scared to lose the missional intent that we started with around isolation as we pursued scale. Um, it just got, I noticed at Magnolia specifically, our Magnolia location specifically, uh, as volume was just increasing and increasing, it became harder and harder to actually feel like we we're having the missional impact that we wanted to. Mm -hmm. So um, I think that was kind of a, a back of the mind fear of like, man, when this thing is a huge success, it makes it harder to achieve the mission, which seems counterintuitive. So you've decided that you're going to scale. This is what's going to make your company money. 
you're you're seeing the fears at this point. Tell me about what happened kind of following this breakthrough. I think we're entering the downfall. Yeah, this, yeah. Is, this is the part where you're at a peak and then um, a lot of momentum starts pushing you downward. Okay. Um, Let's talk about that. Okay, so I talked about it. We made a key hire and I essentially outsourced operations to them um, and also outsourced culture to them. And for those of you... Uh, who are listening, if you're the leader of an organization, you're the cultural leader of the organization, and it's really important for you to hold um, onto that as, as long as you possibly can, because a lot of really just like un intangible factors flow out of the cultural missional intent that you started with. And it's really hard for you to hire someone and then say, here you go, here's everything, and for them to be set up for success. And um, so I, I think that that happened and trying to get me out of operations because I already said I wasn't great at that. And then competition aggressively moved in. We had co-working. When I started Craftwork, I, or when I thought of the idea for Craftwork in July of 2014, I, I, I didn't even know what co-working was. It shows you how far the industry has come since then. And we worked, moved into Clear Fork. We had uh, a ton of coffee competition moved in. It was essentially us and Avoca when we got started. And there's 10, 12 plus coffee shops here mm -hmm. just in Central Fort Worth. Um, and then our unit economics are not improving at the store level. And I'm not seeing that that growth that I expected would come through uh, operations. But in spite of that, we're still believing that they're going to turn around. And so we're continuing to sign deals in the future while you're trying to figure out what's going on at home, essentially. Um, and our Austin, start, our Austin store launches, um, and it's like a total, the, the, the launch, it like totally falls flat, but we start to see incremental progress. And so we saw this, like we had an awesome, we have an awesome team there and had an awesome team when we launched. And we saw this incremental growth in their sales. And so you're, you're kind of like assessing all these things at once saying, okay, baseline store economics are not as good as you thought. And so should we stop scale and figure that out? Or we just got a bunch of capital. So we have this pressure to scale. And so everything's kind of like hitting you at once. Um, and then you're you're going out and saying, hey, this is what you need for your apartment community. You, you should have craft work there. These are all the things we do in hospitality. This is the way we can care for your residents. Um, and then like as we're juggling all those factors, COVID hits and we're in this season of uh, where retail just totally gets killed. And so uh, I think that COVID was, I think, more of a straw that broke the camel's back uh, for parts of our company. Um, and then it was necessarily like, oh, it's this one thing that we can blame all. It's like we, we were struggling in areas before, but now it was, oh, there's retail traffic is just crushed. So I think that was like a, a series of events that really led us down a, a tough path. Um, and so we closed down our shops for COVID, right? And pause. And that was a really challenging moment. Um, and, and really tr trying to figure out like, how do we get out of this season? Part of the most surface level, obvious failure for our customers and for our employees and our investors is that we shut down a shop um, that 
it might seem really small to some people who have maybe run more ventures, iterated more, uh, but to us, it's a big deal. Um, that's a customer base that we don't get to serve anymore. That's a, a district that we really wanted to be a part of long-term that we won't get to participate in. Um, but I think that the maybe more core failure that is we're swallowing and trying to figure out how to get over this one is that Craftwork was started to draw people out of isolation and into community. We had this very specific missional intent and our how for solving the isolation epidemic was through small footprint co-working and hospitality driven cafes. And to solve big issues, you need scalable solutions typically that can be applied across a lot of different markets. And so a lot of my motivation was getting to that place of scale. And I think in this season, it's essentially admitting that Riley, although your missional intent may be good, your application, your how and your what was wrong. How do you cope with a failure? Like practically, what does that look like? So I think I'm someone who gets from point A to point Z like 1,500 times a day. Um, I'm always trying to play out scenarios in my head. And so I think well before COVID, you're already, I'm already in my head iterating these different possibilities. Um, And so I think (laughs) during that time when you're either anticipating the failure or already feeling elements of it, and especially I think after COVID hit, kind of seeing that the the end is near uh, for the foundry uh, and just trying to figure out what to do. I think I had a lot of silent drives. Um, I think just being in my head a ton. Uh, I was recently frustrated with my daughter because she spaces out a lot. And I realized that that is 100% uh, from me um, because I think that I'd be in conversations, especially at home, but even in social settings. And I'm like not present at all. I'm processing all the elements of that may play out and trying to, or that have already played out and I'm trying to adjust and um, move to those, um, move to a place where we can find a, find a through line. Um, And I think I started talking one like habit that was really odd. um, And I really don't like it in myself is I started talking really openly about my failure uh, with friends and colleagues um, like openly, not in like a, I think this is a healthy space to talk about it, but more of like, essentially like if I predict the failure, uh, then somehow I'm right. Basically like I'm, I'm, I'm zoning myself off to the emotional impact of failing by saying like, Oh yeah, this is probably going to go down. Like sales are down, whatever, like, and kind of discrediting the actual grief of walking through the, the shop failure. Um, it was, I could almost separate myself as, Oh, that's something over there. I don't, I don't really care about it. Um, when in reality, like I did and I was fighting really hard for it. Um, but it felt like it was kind of a self-protective measure. During your pit of despair, who did you look to blame first? The people that I looked to blame first were, uh, people on our team that had a misalignment with, um, either what success in my mind looked like or misalignment with our mission. Um, I'm extremely critical of myself and of the world around me and the people around me. And I think that uh, one desire that I have um, is that people are 100% in 
I would need people to be all in on what we're working on together because Craftworks brand aside, what we're trying to fight for is so much bigger than ourselves, And for so for people to be kind of half in, half out um, really erodes at me and uh, makes me see them as an issue. And so I think that early on it was, oh, I just have a people issue. If I solve the people issue, then then well uh, like that's where the blame can be directed it's not it's not craftworks model it's uh we have the wrong person in the wrong seat or the right person in the wrong seat um so finding um uh, i think that was like the the initial blame that i looked to direct towards others and then i think it starts going towards myself of how didn't you see this earlier how didn't you pick up on the red flags uh, what characteristic about yourself did you like want to change as you start like this internal reflection we look back at what we've already shared as far as like why i started i think that i feel like i'm almost like my gifts are like wrongly placed to where i wish i was wired for something more small and something more local but like i almost can't do it not because it's insignificant like it's so significant who cares if you run a multi-billion dollar company or if you you serve one shop and one customer interaction is intentional like go apply your gifts wherever those should be but i think that i really hated the fact that i had been wired for someone who had gifts of analysis and strategy rather than just like a simple like steady rhythm of operating one rather than a hundred um I don't even know if I can operate a hundred, if I'm competent to operate that much. Um, but I know that like I am incompetent to operate one well, and I would, I would eventually like have pretty high, I think burnout personally, and I, but I wish I was wired for that. Uh, who has been, or who is your safe person amidst this? And like, how did they care for you? Yeah, I, I think that, uh, the wife of any entrepreneur is a saint or the husband of any entrepreneur is a saint. Um, I think that Emily was particularly, um, I, I honestly don't know how she'd do it. I'd be so annoyed with myself if I were in her shoes, but she really just listened a ton. Um, I remember like going out to dinner on a date night and we were just sitting in front of the shop because she had like met me there and we were trading cars or something, but we're, like sitting in front of the shop after the date night. And I'm just like, I'm pretty sure this is going to fail. And I said that, and that was like well before I actually knew, but I just had this intuition that like something here wasn't right. But I think in every like moment of processing or different idea or trying to just find a way through Emily again and again, just like sat and listened and provided, although she's not a businesswoman, she is incredibly wise. And I think that relying upon her for some of the wisdom to my insecurity, my reactions, my desire to go off the handle uh, uh, Emily was really the one who was kind of like helping me find my through line. And also just to note, you've also had more children since <laughs> you started craft, right? Yeah. And, and I think they, they are, uh, they are also in that category of safe people. Um, they don't know how they're contributing emotionally to, uh, me, but I think that I remember, uh, it was the day that we closed for COVID and my oldest, uh, or sorry, my second oldest daughter, uh, was, uh, had, I forget what they were doing that day, but we had just basically furloughed a ton of our team. And I had had several conversations with people who were in tears 
and I was in tears throughout that day and I came home and she was writing in her journal and she was like, dad, how do you write best day ever? <laughs> and I just remember feeling like there's something so beautiful about a child's disposition and what they're zoned into. And the beauty of it is there's like an invitation to enter that reality with them rather than stay in your own reality. So I think that I, I really uh, am grateful for all four of the children that we have now um, and them uh, just being there for me. Um, I fully expect my oldest to be an entrepreneur herself. Her drive is uh, out of this world. So, If you could tell yourself one thing before the distant happened, what would it be? Someone told me recently that we have an inability to exist in the past and an inability to exist in the future. Essentially, all we have is the present. That's the only place that we can exist. And the past creates regret. The future creates anxiety. And so I think that it would probably be something like um, each day is a gift, like enter into that opportunity to be present with the people around you. So complete the following sentence. This innovation would have been successful if... Uh, I actually don't know if it would have been successful if it would have done this, but this is what I would have told myself before we opened the door is to be patient with scale and be impatient with profitability. Motivated by this missional desire, having a version of what I thought could help solve that need um, at scale. I think that because the problem seems so big, it was this like, well, you need to scale now. Like there's loneliness all over the place. Let's go. This is the answer. And profitability doesn't like really mean anything to me other than sustainability. If you are profitable, then you can continue to apply your uh your product to the market you can try to solve that need but an unprofitable company um is not sustainable and ceases to have the opportunity to um try to address that need so i think that i wish i would have even though it was so counter to my gifts to understand this is a season of patient with scale and um, impatiently uh, refining our profitability formula so that we can be sustainable long-term. Did you consider throwing in the towel? I think it would be really hard for me to do that when the need is so big and you've been so zoned into it for so long. There, there's definitely times early on, I mean, just like the world teaches you to measure yourself in regards to how much economic value you are able to create for yourself. So you're based essentially upon the worth of your salary or the worth of whatever you do. And I think that at times early on, there is such a drastic drop in just like the economic benefit of running craft work, but being married to someone like Emily and being alongside a team like we have, it became like, I think that kind of initial reaction of like, is this economically worth it? It's like, that actually was never the motivation. So why are we even bringing it into the formula now? This isn't about economics. There isn't a job offer that could pull me away from this. It's, uh, I'm, I'm fueled by our why and our team is fueled by our why. So like, let's keep going until uh, we can't keep going anymore. So I think that like, I'd have to be forced to throw in the towel by essentially like everything going to the ground. So Craftwork 1.0 doesn't work. How did that failure impact your outlook on taking risks? Because you're a risk oriented you're you're a risk taker. You like risk. Yeah, I think I like the thrill of a risk. I think I I like to be right, and I as I said, I like strive to be the best at what we do. And so I think that 
looking back, I don't, I like want to take risks more now that I've taken one and failed. I think that I'll approach them a lot differently. Um, I don't think I built with a, a mentality of like, how can you observe and iterate and listen to your customer and your employees to like change your model over time? I think it was like, this is the answer and we're going to run with this one. Um, and I think that I'll be more likely to listen uh, early on in those risks. And so they're constantly being adjusted um, rather than being kind of like just sending it. I felt like I kind of just like, sent craft work like off and we were like going down the hill without breaks and just like kind of trying to ride the wave so you just shared some lessons about kind of what what to appreciate more but what um tell me how this experience has shifted the way you detect failure earlier i don't think there's some process where i can see failure or earlier i just think my approach um will be different whenever i like basically i if if everything played out I don't think there would be this like upfront analysis that I do that helps me detect failure earlier. It's like when a certain red flag arises, it's how do I deal with that? And so going back to that summer of 2018, whenever I kind of saw an erosion of our business model a little bit, but still believed that things would, you know, be fine. I think that my reaction to that red flag was essentially like hard work and increased belief, just hustle harder, believe harder, and we'll get there. And I think that that's a really naive way to approach things. And when red flags arise, I think there needs to be a deep exploration of those red flags um, by really talking with your team, understanding like what's at the core of this um, this issue that's arising. Um, is this something we should be paying attention to? Or is it just, oh, we dropped the ball in one area and this is really more of a process thing than a fundamental business issue. So we adjust what we're doing. Okay, so functionally, how would you have applied that looking back? The tension of the entrepreneur, especially when one is someone who's a little bit later in their career, you get capital and there's this like, tr like later in your career, so you're able to go raise capital, you get investors behind you. And there's this like, you know, order from God to go scale your company and you have to report on a quarterly basis to them and say, this is how we're growing our venture. This is how it's getting bigger. So you almost have this like weight on you that you have to grow immediately. And so saying, Hey, investors, we're going to take three months to figure out what's wrong with our business model. That's not really going to fly. Um, and you're incentivized like not to do that. But I think if, if I was going back, then I probably would not have raised capital as early as we did. And I think I would have tried to sit in our probably two shop model and observe them. Um, how can we, how can we scale? Can this scale? Is it possible to scale? What costs are associated with operating these really just understanding all the mechanics of that. But I think at that point it was honestly like when you start talking about scale to different people, you're, you're feeling outside your, your playing field. I, I think I just wasn't willing to accept a two-shot model. I think I wanted more. I wanted something different. I felt really insecure in my flaws in operating those like early locations. And so I like I honestly don't know what I would have done differently. I wish I had a different answer for like our listeners. But I think if I could have paused in those early stages and just said, hey, let's operate 
uh, one or two of these for a couple of years and figure out, is this something we can grow across Texas? And then I think the, I would have seen like, no, it's not like, this is not a model that is scalable, but the mission and, and the customer need is still there. So like, what else can we do? And I think that's more of like where we're at now. But do you think you would have gotten to where you're at now without this impossible scaling? I don't think so. Um, so I think in that sense, I'm grateful that we reached this point because I think we had to be in front of certain executives on the at the real estate level to kind of observe what is the need here and what's like, what are their pain points? And I think if we were just a small cafe in Fort Worth, Texas, like we wouldn't have been privy to those conversations. So I think in that sense, like I'm grateful for how it opened up doors, but in this point right now, before you've, like, I think of all the different entrepreneur stories that you hear, you look back on their little failure moments and it's kind of like a blip on their radar right now. It doesn't feel like a blip on their radar. It feels like my reality. Um, so I'm hoping for something different, but I think that I, I could, I could see that if things turn out differently, if we are able to create something at scale that addresses our, our mission, then, um, and addresses the isolation epidemic, then I think we can look back with those like rose-colored glasses. But right now, it, I'm not in that place. Sure. You you said grateful and gratitude is one of our core values at Craftwork. So you mentioned one thing you were grateful for, but what else are you grateful for looking back on your pit of despair? I think that looking back, I'm grateful for the moments when I chose to enter into like kind of the most simple version of myself whether that was like karaoke with our team is in spite of like a lot of stress or um, just like in really stressful seasons, like going on team runs or playing basketball or trying to just like organizing our quarterly meetings around a game of fishbowl. I think there's just a few moments where it's like, we're not just the value. We're not valued by our outputs, but we're just like, we're each unique and have gifts yet we're all like really like vulnerable creatures. And I think that I felt that with my team and the ability to bring that vulnerability, um, to like cry in front of our team at times. And I think it makes me a little bit more like human moving forward, uh, regardless of like wherever I apply my gifts in the future. So you're, you're a young CEO, but what takeaway from this experience will change the rest of your life? So I think that, there's two things that might seem like they're contradictory, but one of them is that I really believe that a steady faithfulness to something is meaningful. I've thought about this podcast a lot and, and thought like, what's at the heart of this podcast? And I think it's, it's trying to articulate something that you would have done even if you knew failure was inevitable. Mm -hmm. And what I've learned from this past season is that if you feel strongly and led to pursue some missional why, like it's going to suck, but it's going to be, it, it may suck. <laughs> and, uh, but like even in failure, it was still worth it because there was something in you in those early stages that said, this is not the way that life is supposed to be. So what's next from here? Thanks for asking that. Uh, in spite of this challenge, I think that part of, every entrepreneur is kind of like trying to see past the current pit that you're in or past the current circumstances you're in to the reality you want to create. 
and that reality is still focused on isolation for us. Um, we really, and it is still in apartment communities, but it's a little bit of a different version than what Craftwork's been in the past. We are transitioning out of being a coffee and co-working player to really zoning into how do we use beverage service and hospitality to care for residents in the place that they live. And so that looks like these hospitality bars, as we call them at Craftwork, that are going to essentially be the start and end to residence day. Um, landlords are that we're working with are putting craft work into apartment communities so that apartments have uh, a place where their residents can come down and um, essentially have a, a watering hole to meet each other. It's a community gathering space and they have those spaces now, but without an operator to activate those and have an excuse to go sit on the couches in these big, amazing lobby areas, then there's really no reason for them to be there or for them to have the opportunity to meet uh, the people they live with. So our team is going to be focused on that. We have our first location opening in November at uh, the Cooper in Fort Worth, and then uh, we're going to keep adding locations after that. So we're really excited about that. It's very different than the craft work we created in the first five years, but it still has the same why, and it is drafting off a lot of what we learned um, from um, from coffee side of things, but um, really, and how to care for people. So we're excited about that. So welcome to the end of your first podcast, where right. we end every podcast with the human four. Uh, four questions that we're going to ask everybody. So what do you eat for breakfast? I most frequently eat uh, a bowl of oatmeal with my kids. Uh, we make a big, like my first responsibility is getting coffee made for my wife and myself. And then making a big batch of oatmeal, which is then served out in six quantities for each person <laughs> in our family. And so usually it's oatmeal. Now, are they all the same or does everybody no, we, want we something have, different? We have different dietary restrictions. And so we have your almond butter camp, your peanut butter camp, salt, no salt, honey, no honey, bananas. I think everyone eats bananas. So. Mm, fair. What is the most likely song for you to sing in your car that you wouldn't be caught dead sharing on a podcast there are plenty like terrible pop songs that i could probably like belt mm -hmm. but i think like the most vulnerable song is uh one called uh waving through a window from dear evan hansen and it's all about like loneliness and how like the world's like you're kind of observing from a window outside of the world and it's like really like you belt it and so i think that that one has definitely been on in my car and I belt it. I think if I did that one for karaoke, it's like, it's way too like emotional, but now everyone knows. So now we all know. We all know. What's your go-to dance move? I, uh, I don't really have one. Um, because when your whole body is overtaken by the music, mm. it is hard to really identify one specific move. And so it's just kind of like, it, mm -hmm. I love to dance. I love weddings, but like, I'm always that guy. What's your hope from here? I think my hope from here is that although Kraftwerk has failed to scale one model, um, that we would find a way through where we can continue to serve this uh, original need that we saw and still exists. And we have some of those things in the works right now, uh, but it took a whole 
rebuilding of our company in order to be in a place to try to pursue those things. So Riley, thank you for joining us on your very first episode of The Pit of Despair. Thanks for joining us on Pit of Despair today. We put this podcast together to encourage you, the listener. Ultimately, we don't want you to feel alone in this journey. For more encouragement from Craftwork, sign up for the Weekly Advocate at craftworkgroup.com. See you next time.